Our texts this morning are uh, from two different places in the scriptures. The first from Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 21 through 33. This is the word of God. I'm sorry, it's 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, the wife, as even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then from Genesis chapter 3, and verse, verses 8 through 21. We're kind of picking up in the middle of the story here, but you all know the story. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Father, we ask that you would cause the scales to fall from our eyes and that you would open up ears that are clogged and resistant to hearing your word. We pray that you would soften hearts and illuminate minds. Only you can do this. And so we look to you. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. My glasses are gone. I guess my glasses are going to stay gone. Okay, well, last week we began to explore the effects of the fall on both men and women, and we noted a few things that are important to remember. First of all, there was a fall before the fall. Lucifer and the angelic beings who supported him in his rebellion, they all fell. And the root cause of their fall, we're told in the scriptures, was pride, and perhaps along with the pride, envy and jealousy. Those two things always go hand in hand, pride and envy and jealousy. You see, humility is content and is happy with whatever station and whatever gifting that God has appointed to each of us. Now, we're given very little information about how the devil became the devil. We do know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that pride was involved, as I mentioned. We do know from 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels, even the unfallen angels, feel a kind of a, a burning desire. Oh, good, glasses. Thank you. It's hard to preach through bifocals. It's, no, that's okay. If it happens again, I'm going to have to have you killed, though. So... Just kidding, maybe beaten up a little. We do know that pride was involved. We do know from 1 Peter 1 that the angels and even the unfallen angels uh, feel a kind of a burning desire to look into God's dealings with us, particularly as it relates to our redemption, we're told there. And so they feel a sort of a, a holy jealousy about us if I can put it that way, and and since the unfallen angels manifest that, it's not hard to imagine um, some feeling of unholy jealousy on the part of the angels who fell. Indeed, it's not scripture, it's not even official theology, but within the history of the church, sort of the the story is told that, um, that, uh, that God told Satan, take care of Adam after he had just created Adam out of the mud. And, uh, and Satan looked at him and said, um, non serviam in Latin, I will not serve him. We do know that at least some of the angels were created to be ministering spirits who serve us. And we do know from the scriptures that one day we will rule or judge the angels. And remember in the scriptures, judging doesn't have to do only with innocent and guilty, it also has to do with rule. And so, for instance, we have these military leaders in the book of Judges, who God raises up from time to time. So if you're infested with pride, it's not hard to see how an an angel could go off the rails, so to speak, because we see that sort of behavior in human beings all the time, and perhaps we've seen it even in ourselves. So Satan falls, and his disease manifests itself 
in several symptoms, according to the scripture. First of all, he doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. He doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. Second of all, he doesn't want to fulfill the function for which he was created. Part of the devil being the devil. He doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. He doesn't want to do what he was created to do. He wants to dominate people he was meant to help, and he wants to exploit them for his own purposes. And fourthly, he also wants to hurt them, to bring death and pain. And so Satan comes to the garden with the express intention of spreading his disease. And he comes first to the woman, and we find once again, that the fall is a complex event that culminated in an act that separated Adam and Eve from God, but you can see things starting to go bad early on. He comes to the woman and talks to her, and the woman adds to the word of God. He listens, or she listens to Satan and begins to mistrust her husband's word, which is God's word to her through her husband, Then she covets that which is not hers and breaks the command of God. And then after she's killed herself, whether she understands what she's done or not is not clear from the text, but then she offers the fruit to her husband to kill him. Now, where is the man this whole time? Well, according to the scriptures, after she eats, she gives some of the fruit to her husband who was there with her. So he's right there. And the man is standing by silently while his wife talks to the devil. And we're told in 1 Timothy that the man was not deceived. That's what 1 Timothy 2.14 says. But the man also doesn't contradict the serpent. He doesn't kill the serpent. He doesn't take his wife away from the serpent. He doesn't protect her from the serpent. And so he fails. He fails to keep the garden. And then he fails to intercede with God on her behalf when she sins. Instead, realizing that he's lost the thing that he loves most in the world, which is the place that God should occupy in his heart, he eats the fruit, knowing that it will kill him. And he murders his own soul. He thinks to himself, Better to die with her than live without her. And because of the position that this particular man holds as the federal head of all humanity, he transmits sin and death to all his offspring. Now, we uh, use the word federal most of the time in association with the federal government. What What the word federal means is that one person or a small group of people, is entrusted to act on behalf of the larger group. That's what it means to be, uh, to have a federal government. And so the government, this little group of people, is not consulting us at every turn. They are acting as they think best. And then what they do obligates us, it affects us. So if Uh, For instance, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt on December 8th, 1941, declared war on Japan, if you were there and alive then, you were at war with Japan. 
whether you wanted to be at war with Japan or realized the implications of war with Japan, you were at war with Japan because your federal head declared war. And it's much the same way with Adam. Adam was the federal head of all humanity, and his action then bound and obligated us all and affected us all. And uh, we see that, um, that this affects us in much the same way that a hereditary genetic disease, for instance, is transmitted, is transmitted to one's children and then to one's grandchildren. We inherit Adam's stain. And so we're not born innocent. We're born skewed already. And then out of our skewed and messed up heart that we're born with, as soon as we can act, we begin to act out of our hearts, which are messed up. This is why you don't have to teach your children to take or to hit or to scream or to bite. They, they learn that. They, they know that. They come up with that quite naturally. You have to teach them not to do those things. You have to start standing on their little hearts and making them think and behave in a different way. Now, I said before that what Satan did was to transmit his disease to the man and the woman and through them to all of their offspring. Now, remember the symptoms of Satan's disease. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't want to do the thing I was made for. I want to exploit those I was meant to help. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't like them, and I'm going to do them harm wherever I can. Now, fallen men and women have a different symptom profile. That's the thing I want you to take away from today. Fallen men and women both bear the symptoms of Satan, but they do it in different ways. The disease affects men and women differently. And God has ordained this, and we see this in the curse. God's curse falls on each party in a slightly different way. Now, we're going to take the, the scriptural order from Genesis 3, and we're going to take it in reverse. We're going to talk about the man today, next week the woman, and if there's time, the serpent. Um, but for the man, we notice several things. First of all, God curses Adam's vocation. God curses Adam's work. His original job was to work the garden, was to keep the garden or guard the garden. That word can mean both. And the food that he and his wife needed just grew. And it's significant that it grew on trees. So when Adam was hungry, Adam looked up. And he looked up to find something on a tree that seemed appetizing. And in looking up, he was also looking past the tree to the one who gave him his sustenance. And so Adam is looking up, and he's looking at the tree, and then what's beyond the trees, to, to the heavenlies, to God. Now, how would Adam have gardened? What would Adam's day-to-day -day work look like? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Now, I'm drawing on, on an understanding of the Scriptures that says that what Jesus will accomplish when everything's finished with a new heavens and a new earth is what the Garden of Eden was before the fall plus, okay? So in the, in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, in our glorified bodies, we will be what Adam and Eve were supposed to become had they not taken the humanity through the root of the fall and sin and death 
and all of that. So there's a correspondence there. So we can look at the one and draw conclusions about the other. All right? That's what I'm doing here. So how would Adam have gardened? Adam wakes up in the morning and he looks around and he's not happy with where things are. He wants some things moved. How would Adam have done that? I think Jesus gives us a hint in Luke 17 and verse 6. And I didn't have time to ask for slides to be made. And I didn't want to put that pressure on anybody with the, with the women's thing. And I didn't finish my sermon until 5.30 on Friday night. So you have no slides. But if you want to write this scriptures down, Luke 17.6. And I'll read it to you. Jesus says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. And if Adam needed some dirt moved, Adam didn't have a shovel. Adam didn't have a bulldozer. And Jesus says in Matthew 17 and verse 20, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So if Adam needed to kill a tree for some reason, a tree that wasn't doing what he needed it to do for some reason, if such a thing was possible in unfallen Eden, he didn't break out the roundup. He didn't break out some other herbicide. He'd just do what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 21 when he went to the unfruitful fig tree for some lunch because he was hungry, but there were no figs on it. And so Jesus cursed that tree and it withered. And his disciples were amazed. And they said, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So what I conclude from this and from what other descriptions of what our life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're, once again, not given a lot of information. And we are told that you can't even imagine how good it's going to be and how interesting the work to do will be and how pleasing it will be. Um, you, I think that Adam was, unfallen Adam was an amazing and a powerful creature. And he was an amazing and a powerful creature because his character was such that he could walk and work cooperatively with God and therefore wield God's power to accomplish the work that he needed to do. So when Adam worked, God worked inside of Adam and through Adam. And while he was moving mountains around and uprooting trees without using a shovel and replanting them without digging any new holes, if you had asked Adam how he did his work, he would have said, it is not I but Christ in me. Does that sound familiar? Okay. God's power flowed into and through Adam in great measure because unfallen Adam's character was such that God could trust him to wield that power appropriately. God did not, for instance, have to worry that Adam would get mad at his wife and drop a mulberry tree on her in a fit of temper, right? He didn't have to worry about that. And what does Jesus say about all this? John 14, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, 
because I am going to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. So think about that for a minute. If Jesus says, you will do greater works than the works that I do. He, he can't be talking about the works that are associated with his divinity, like dying for sin and rising. He must be talking about the works that belong to his unfallen humanity. And so what Jesus did in his humanity is the kind of thing that you will be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the, the name it and claim it, confess it and possess it crowd of the charismatic wing of the church reads these verses and makes a great mistake. They notice that Jesus makes great promises to the Christian here concerning prayer, and they note that in, in each case, Jesus makes a vital connection between the answer to prayer or the result of prayer and to faith. If you have faith, even like a mustard seed. And they mistake the faith that Jesus mentions here for, for something else. They mistake the faith that Jesus is talking about for a mental state of confidence that the outcome that they want will be magically produced by their faith and by their believing. So they would teach, if you want business success or material prosperity, and then you will get it if you believe God for it, meaning that you suspend any thinking that's contrary to what you're believing God for, and any thought that God might not actually want to give you what you're asking for is by definition from the devil. And so prayer becomes for many of them not asking God to cooperate with your desires. It becomes some kind of magic thing. And they start talking about how powerful your thoughts are and all these other kinds of things. Well, your thoughts are powerful in a way, but not in this way. And so if you're believing God and you believe hard enough, by which it means you don't have any doubts that you're going to get what you're asking for, then God will give you what you're asking for. You will get what you're asking for. And if you don't, then it's your own fault because you didn't believe God hard enough. And so if you don't get what you want, if you're one of these people, whether it has to do with Cadillacs or cancer cells, then somebody just didn't have enough faith. And they're the ones that failed. It's their fault. The hocus pocus didn't work. And if they just had enough faith and maybe sent some seed money to Joel Osteen, you could have had what you were asking for. And that's not biblical. That is not biblical. The, uh, one of the things that... Um, because I've got several friends that are African Christians and in positions of authority in the African church, one of the things that the, African, the Orthodox African Christian leaders are always fighting is this nonsense. And do you know why they fight this nonsense? Because it goes hand in glove with African pagan superstition. That if you just push the right button, the gods will give you what you want. And here comes a Christian missionary who's teaching ostensibly about Jesus and how to be saved. And then somebody comes along behind him with this nonsense and says, if you just push the right buttons, God will give you what you want. And so this name it and claim it nonsense is just all over the African church. It's a very, very difficult problem to solve. This kind of believing 
is not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about here is a recognition of the nature of God and the presence of God and the power of God and the sufficiency of God and the goodness of God, which is based on a personal and interactive experience with God. And so when you come to that place and you lose yourself in delight in God, if you surrender all the issues of your life and your death to Him, you will fully surrender your own will to Him too in that process. So that your will and God's will will be the same. You will surrender to God's will and it will delight you. And when you get to the place where you finally surrender your will to God, and for most of us, it's a process, right? You give it to him, and then you take it back. And then you give it to him, and then you take it back. And then you give it to him, and you take it back. A friend of mine once said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's what you're doing. You, you give yourself to God, and then you take it back. But when you come to the place where you're maintaining that even most of the time, sin becomes unattractive and unimportant. The things that obsess worldly people, like the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, they become unimportant. The questions like, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, become utterly unimportant, because you are confident in God's care, in God's provision, in God's love for you, and you have therefore fixed your attention on seeking Him, on seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. The opinions of the world don't matter to you anymore. What other people think? What will the neighbors think? You know, I don't care what the neighbors think. The opinions either of other, even of other Christians, of fellow believers, will cease to be of concern to you. All that matters is pleasing God. And it, you believe something, loved ones. You genuinely have faith in something when you are prepared to act as if it were true, more or less automatically. You believe in gravity. Why? Because you act as though gravity is true. You walk carefully down the steps because of gravity. You don't have to think about, now, do I believe in gravity right now or not? You know that if you misstep, you will fall because of gravity. So you go around your whole day, hardly without thinking about it, acting as though gravity is true. Well, to have the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here is to go around all day acting as if what Jesus teaches about God is true. That's what it means to have this kind of faith. It's to believe that, G that things are as Jesus says they are, and then to act consistently on that belief. And when we operate in that way, in a habitual and a routine way, we will find many wonderful things happening. Among the wonderful things that happen is that we will find that our prayer life is much enhanced and that our answers to prayer are more frequent and more dramatic than they were before. And that when God does say no, which he can, right? He's God. He knows better than us. If he does say no, we're not bothered in the least because we're confident in the depths of our being that the goodness and the power of God are freely available to us at all times, even in our difficult circumstances, and that God is at work in us accomplishing something more wonderful in our lives 
than that which would result if he had said yes and given us what we, what we asked. All that to say, in Christ, we shall be partially restored to Adam's state even in this world. And we shall be fully restored to Adam's state plus in the next. Part of the reason God gives us prayer in this world is to train us so that we can reign responsibly in the next world. Will all of that to ease, uh, sorry, all that ease, rather, in the midst of his work that Adam had and all the pleasure of his calling, all the felling trees to go here and there and mountains to go here and there, that's all destroyed. And notice another thing. Adam's sin was in eating, and the curse shall therefore involve eating. Formerly, his face was lifted up to the trees and to the heavens above the trees for his food. Where will his face be now? His face will be cast down to the dirt, the same dirt that God tells the serpent that he will eat for the rest of his days. And Adam will now have to scratch a living from the dirt. No longer will the trees of the garden provide his food. Now it is the plants of the field that are his food, grains in particular, because his food is now bread. And by the curse of God, the ground will automatically now produce thorns and thistles as easily as it formerly produced food. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to have a crop of dandelions? I mean, they grow like crazy, right? Now, I know you can eat dandelions. I don't want to but you can, but, but all these plants, we used to have some of the gnarliest, nastiest looking weeds I've ever seen in my life grew in South Dakota. And I, I remember one time where I'd planted turnips and a couple other things, and I was gone for, you know, like a week, and I came back, and it had rained, so I, you know, I knew things were going to be in pretty good shape. And there was this spiky thing that, that had grown, and it was seriously as tall as this pulpit. It wasn't there the week before. You couldn't even grab it and pull it out. It was like, you know, it was just nasty without even trying. But man, those tomatoes, whoo. I work all summer trying to get a tomato, and you gotta plant it late because it, it, it doesn't stop snowing till June, and then you gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta nurse it and you can't water it during the, sun, during the daytime because the, the sun turns the little drops on the leaves into lenses and burns the leaves because it's that altitude stuff. And, and then the grasshoppers come and, and, the, and they eat everything. And then if you survive that, it starts freezing around uh, the middle of, of September. And so you have to go out and cover them up every night. And you go through all that to get a tomato. And when you pick it and put it on your plate and cut it up, it tastes like one of those plastic Walmart tomatoes in February. It was just awful. I was like, God does not want stuff to grow in South Dakota. And it's a little better here, but now I've got, instead of thorns and thistles, I've got chipmunks and squirrels. I'm, I'm about ready to murder all the wildlife on my property. Just start with the highest animals and go to the lowest. Well, the ground now produces thorns and thistles as easily as it formerly produced his food. And coaxing enough food from the ground will require tremendous exertions of time and energy and sweat and pain. Now here's the kicker. 
before in the garden when things were easy, Adam was still not adequate to the task. That was why he needed Eve in the first place. That's why God created. He needed help. He could not do what he needed to do in the garden by himself under ideal circumstances. And now circumstances are not ideal. And now the task is exponentially harder. And now the only resources he has are muscle and bone and fallen intellect and sweat. And that's all he's got to fall back on. And now the weeds are trying to choke out the wheat. And it's not just farming that was affected by this. Everything, every, men, have you ever sometimes suspected when you're trying to get something done that the entire universe is collaborating against you to keep it from getting done? Do you know why? Adam. It is collaborating. It's like Satan comes down and says, I rust that bolt right there and it will break off when you try and, turn, when you try and take it off. And then when you try and drill it out, you'll break the drill bit in the middle of the hole. The world does not work as it should in the area of work because of the curse of Adam. By the, you'll have to, and you'll have to work, says God, right up until the point when you die. By the sweat of your face, says God, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So you're doing your kids a favor when you say, kids, enjoy your childhood, because when you grow up, it's work, 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 work until you die, because that's what it is in the curse. Before there was ease and there was abundance, now there is hard labor and scarcity. And hard labor and scarcity means uncertainty about the future. So worry, anxiety now enters in. In a person far from God, that translates to anxiety and fear about the future. And Adam and his wife are now insecure at a basic and a fundamental level. And the power and the provision of God are much less available than they were. And so the chief questions on the minds of fallen men and women will be things like, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? And what shall we wear? Now notice what Jesus says. We're partially restored to Adam's state in Christ. You don't need to worry about what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, because the power of God will be there for you one way or another to solve those problems. But for Adam, the power of God was gone. And the answer for them was the same as it was in Jesus' day. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But for most of Adam's sons and most of Eve's daughters, they are not willing to do that. They have a built-in antipathy towards God now, and they don't want to bow, and they don't want to serve. Why? Because they've been infested with the devil's disease. And the symptoms are, I don't want to bow, and I don't want to serve. So how will Adam and his sons behave in the face of all this anxiety and all this uncertainty about the future? Well, most often it goes one of two ways. And it's the same two ways that lost men cope today. Either aggression or avoidance. Either anger 
or gritted and gritted teeth and trying to force the people around you to cooperate with you as you're trying to get your job done to provide for yourself and your family and nobody will just help you or leave you alone or whatever it takes and so you're angry and you take that out on those around you or abdication, weakness, shirking responsibilities, trying to be at ease when you should be at work. You say, I'm just overwhelmed with stress and all I want is a little mental vacation. And, and a little mental vacation turns into a perpetual mental vacation. And laziness and blame shifting and self-indulgence become part of your character. You want the power of headship so that you can make people do what you want, but you don't want to put in the work and the love that headship requires. And the wife will be the primary recipient of either of those sinful responses, either of his angry abuse or his abandonment and abdication of responsibility. And what does the word of God say to Adam's sons who are on the path to restoration through Jesus Christ? It says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loves the church. In other words, men, desire your wife's good as God defines her good. Not as the feminist movement defines her good. Not as the corrupt culture defines her good. Not even necessarily as she sometimes wants to define her own good. And then prayerfully, and sacrificially do all that is in your power to accomplish God's best for her. That's what it means to love your wife. And that will cover every bit of your life beautifully if you do it. She doesn't work to support you, Adam. You work to support her. Uh, if you've got a newer, reliable car and a crummy, unreliable old car, she gets the good car. And you drive the piece of junk. I remember, once again, living in South Dakota, and we were poor. When I took my first church we, there, we actually qualified for welfare in the beginning. And uh, we had one good car and one crummy car. And, uh, and I, she had the good car, because, and, and especially when she had the children, we, when we went and spent all our pennies to buy a, a Buick LeSabre that was only 15,000 miles on it. And she got the good car. And then my, car would be, my truck would be breaking down all the time. And I'd want another truck, and she'd be like, I don't know why you're worried about it. Our cars are fine. I'm like, no, your car is fine. Mine's falling apart, right? That's how you know you've done your job good. She doesn't even know. Your piece of junk is leaving you stranded all the time, right? She gets the good car. You learn, husbands, God's word so that you can understand what God wants for you and for her. And then you teach her. You pray for her. You sacrifice for her. Because that's how Christ treats the church. When she's a troll and she apologizes, you forgive her. You protect her. You cherish her. You would fight a buzzsaw for her if you had to. My kids think I'm crazy about security and stuff like that in our home, but 
because they keep like leaving the garage door up all night and the door unlocked. And I'm like, don't do this. And they're like, Dad, what are you worried about? It's going to be fine. I'm like, you don't read the newspapers. You don't know that it cannot be not fine really, really quick. And I'm responsible. And I'm not sure I'm up to it under all circumstances. So I'm vigilant about prevention. Dad, you're just kind of crazy. Yes, I am. And I'm dangerous. So do what I ask you to do. You protect her. You protect your kids. When she's wrong in a pig-headed way, you tell her. She tells you, right? You tell her instead of being a wimp. Because your model is Christ and the church. And that's what Christ does for the church. You remember I said that Christ is prophet, priest, and king? and that Adam was prophet, priest, and king. Well, part of men being made in the image of God is that you are prophet, priest, and king in your own home. As prophet, you teach her the word of God. That means you got to know it. It's interesting, in, in Paul's day, the women and the men sat in separate sides of the church as they do in the Jewish and Muslim religious services today. And so the women would be um, having a hard time understanding or hearing or something like that. And so they'd start talking among themselves during worship, trying to answer the questions. And Paul says, don't do that. When you get home, ask your husband. Husbands, how many of you are ready to answer your wife's theological and biblical questions? Or does she know more than you? To the extent that she knows more than you, you fail. You are not what you were supposed to be. You are prophet, you are priest. As a priest, you intercede on her behalf before the Lord. You pray for her. You love her. You're concerned about her well-being. When when she makes your life miserable, you're not concerned that you're the miserable person. You're concerned about her character, and you're asking God to change it, not because it would be better for you, but because it would be better for her. And you wait patiently and you bear patiently with her imperfections as Christ does the church. A king is one who subdues rebellion in his people and so you gently subdue her rebellion, but you also protect her from any enemy that would harm her physically, emotionally, or spiritually. You defend your queen. You don't stand by while she's talking to the snake and go, I wonder what's going to happen next. That's the job. That is the job. And it will take everything you've got to do it well. You need to get strong. You need to be disciplined. You need to train. You need to stay strong. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You must succeed with the help of Christ, everywhere that Adam failed. You must learn to do that, and you can. But here's what you're going to need more than anything else. A confident courage. Confident not in yourself, but in your God. He wants this for you. He wants you to be to your wife 
as Christ is to the church. He has ordained that relationship. He made you and her and put you together for the explicit purpose of showing the world how Jesus treats his people. You are a revelation. You are the only Bible that some lost people are going to read. And it counts. It matters how you speak, how you act, how you live. Now, our time is gone for the day. Next week, we'll come back and we'll look at how Satan's disease affected the woman. And then we will see what her restoration looks like. Father, if I have spoken anything today that is untrue, unhelpful, unhealthy, I just ask that you would cause it to be nullified and forgotten. But if I'm speaking the truth, write it on people's hearts. Burn it into their minds. Because these things matter, both now and for eternity. In Jesus' name.